Welcome to Beyond Your Newsfeed, Understanding Contemporary Politics, a podcast of the Political Science Department of Providence College. My name is William Hudson, a professor of, of, of political science at Providence College and host of this podcast. All the views you hear on this podcast are mine and those of my guest. Today, as the world suffers through the global coronavirus pandemic, we are going to consider another global crisis affecting all of us, global warming. In the United States, this summer has seen a range of environmental warning signs that may be linked to global warming. Western states have suffered record-breaking heat that now has led to an unprecedented wave of wildfires. We are in the midst of a hurricane season with predictions of an historically high number of severe storms. Already, Louisiana and eastern Texas have suffered massive destruction from two of these storms. In the east, our summer has featured very high temperatures with unusually high humidity. In the face of signs of accelerating global warming, political and governmental efforts to address this crisis seem stalled, both nationally and internationally. With the ongoing focus on the coronavirus, the longer term and perhaps more devastating global warming crisis seems to have moved a bit to the back burner. Today's Beyond Your News Feed podcast seeks to put global warming front and center. To accomplish this, I've invited my colleague, Casey Stevens, Assistant Professor of Political Science at Providence College and an expert on international climate politics. Professor Stevens earned his undergraduate degree at New Mexico State University, then came east for his PhD at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. He has taught at Providence College since 2014, teaching a wide variety of courses, including international relations, American foreign policy, Latin American politics, and introduction to politics. He has made his mark among our students as one of our most popular instructors. While at PC, Professor Stevens has maintained a productive research agenda, publishing numerous articles on international efforts at promoting environmental sustainability, including renewable energy. Casey, welcome to Beyond Your Newsfeed. It is my great pleasure to be here. Well, very glad to have you. So uh, this really profound uh, crisis around global warming, uh, why don't you start off by reminding us precisely what global warming is and how we can be so certain that human activity uh, is generating the CO2 emissions that seems to be at its root. Yeah, so uh, a global warming or climate change is this long-term process where uh, uh, the entire globe deviates in a significant respect from the pre-industrial temperature sort of a, a range. And so really the, the, the range of temperatures that we existed in for all of human history uh, really deviated fairly minor from, from about uh, 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 one degree above or, or, or below the sort of uh, millennial average. Uh, climate change is a process where you uh, change that, so where you leave the average sort of range uh, and start entering new ranges. Uh, we've seen a number of times of climate change in uh, uh, global history. The, 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 the uh, Earth system uh, changes climate fairly uh, regularly. Um, what is 
happening right now is that we're clearly sort of leaving the, the climactic range that we've uh, uh, sort of existed in for all of human history uh, and entering a new one. Um, the issue comes down to really whether it is caused by human behavior or whether it's one of these natural ones caused by uh, any number of sort of natural uh, features. Um, the science is becoming uh, abundantly clear. It's been clear for a long time that uh, carbon dioxide is a warming gas. So it's a gas that can clearly warm the uh, uh, atmosphere. Uh, we've known that for, for uh, uh, 200 years almost. The larger question is, can massive amounts of CO2 actually change the global climate? And the evidence is becoming very, very clear that yes, we are having a major effect on the global climate. Uh, the clearest evidence of this is actually the pace of climate change. So as I mentioned, climate change has happened before in, in, in environmental history, where we've shifted from one climate state to another. Uh, the one that we are going through right now, the one that we are living through, is happening at 20 to 50 times more rapid than any other one in global history. And so this is one of the most rapid climatic changes that has ever happened in, in, in the history of the world. Um, that's quite significant. And it leads to a really good evidence that this is being caused by carbon dioxide, methane, and other greenhouse gases that are being emitted by humans. Uh, the science is, is, is multi-pronged, and so a lot of people think that it's only uh, sort of the observed mean surface temperature, the thermometers at every airport in, in the world that uh, take the temperature every day. Uh, but they've actually got lots of different evidence that's sort of building into this conclusion of anthropogenic global warming or human-caused global warming. Uh, that includes uh, uh, the observed mean surface temperatures, which are increasing quite regularly um, uh, uh, as time goes on. And I mean, 2020 looks like it's going to be uh, either the hottest or, 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 or second hottest year uh, in recorded history. Uh, but that also includes paleoclimactic studies, which are really impressive and unequivocal about the uh, change that we are seeing right now and the, the, the speed of the change. And that uses both tree ring uh, uh, evidence as well as ice core and uh, uh, glacial evidence to really try to piece together what has the climate been at at various points in history. Uh, and then there's the, the last set, which is really maybe the most important from a political science standpoint, which are the attribution studies, where they look at extreme events like the fires in California or Australia earlier this year, uh, and they really try to attribute, okay, what caused this? And of course, causation is, is highly complex for any of these things, and they're going to have lots of, of, of contributing factors. Uh, but the uh, a repeated occurrence of climate change and global warming in all of these attribution studies is really presenting a very clear picture that it is causing these extreme temperature outcomes uh, that we're seeing all around the world in, in recent decades. Yeah, so the way that would work in, say, California right now is that you've got extremely high heat. There's been, you know, for several, I, I know this, I've got a uh, brother and sister who live in California that they've been telling me for weeks now that uh, it's hotter than it's ever, that they've ever known it to be. Uh, it was 110 in uh, the Sacramento area uh, just last weekend, I guess. And they were complaining about that, but that's been persistent. And so you get this extreme high heat, heat and then uh, something that is kind of routine. There's always a, 
a campfire that gets out of control or a lightning strike. Uh, but when you've got this extreme high heat, that means there's a tinderbox of dry material down there and that gets more explosive and it burns more rapidly. So, so that's what you're really talking about, uh, about how global warming is connected to something like fires in California. Yeah, and, and of course, the fires in California have multiple causes, right? It's the, the, the uh, large-scale uh, moving of people into the fire zones, into the areas where this sort of happens. And that's why we see uh, 500,000 people in Oregon evacuated yesterday. Um, it's also the, the, the high cost of water uh, use, which is increasing uh, 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 very rapidly in California and everywhere else. Uh, but then combining with that is this larger sort of uh, uh, slow-moving process of climate change, uh, which does a lot of, of, of small things that add up quite rapidly. And so it's, it's not simply that it creates the drought conditions for the fire, but that this fire is moving uh, incredibly fast. And the reports are coming out from one of the ones in, in California today uh, that it moved 15 miles in an afternoon. So between between noon and midnight, it moved 15 miles. Uh, that's something that, that uh, fire control officials are saying is unprecedented. And that's something that, that once again, has, has lots of causation, but part of the attribution is the slow-moving climate change. Right. And to recap a bit, I mean, this is Essentially, what we're talking about is the impact of the Industrial Revolution, right? It's, it's when, when human beings began burning large quantities of coal uh, and, and, then, and then eventually petroleum uh, that starts, which, and, a, and a, a product of that, byproduct of that combustion is the release of CO2, right? And so we get this yeah. CO2 buildup uh, in the atmosphere. So it, we're, we're really talking about... Uh, a byproduct of industrial growth, uh, which is, and which, which has also brought a lot of economic prosperity around the world, uh, and that, that's what makes this problem uh, particularly uh, difficult, right? That are yeah. that up to now, at least for the last couple of hundred years, our economic prosperity has been tied to pumping CO two in the atmosphere. Absolutely. And that's one of the, the, the things is if we move from, from viewing climate change as sort of a natural thing to really focusing on the climate problem uh, uh, from a political science or social science standpoint, the climate problem is really three different things. One of which is absolutely climate change as a natural process. And what we really have this uh, century is we have the choice between 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming or two degrees Celsius of warming. And while that might not seem significant, that's half a degree difference, and, and, and very few of us would uh, 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 panic about half a degree difference in the weather any one day, uh, the impact of that on the uh, uh, environment is gonna be just absolutely dramatic. And so, for example, if uh, we keep it at 1.5 degrees warming, uh, we're going to see about 5% of the, the global territory being changed via flooding or, or, or desertification or something like that. If we see two degrees warming, we're going to see 15%. So it's going to be a threefold increase in terms of just land use that's going to just change what it is. It's no longer going to be forest. It's going to change to some other uh, type of uh, uh, land use. And now, so can that's... We, can, can we bore down into that a little bit? So what are, yeah. we, what are we talking about specifically? When you talk about the land use, uh, 15% uh, 
of land being affected or uh, by by this? What what kinds of things are, are happening here? Yeah, so the, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change did this great study in 2018, and, and it, it got some acknowledgement at the time, but I don't think it's got enough reflection now, uh, um, as we have so many other uh, uh, pressing sort of concerns. But what they really did is they said, okay, what's the difference between a 1.5 degree warmer world and a 2 degree warmer world? And the the sort of policy implication is 1.5 is us reading, reaching uh, uh, net neutral, so having no positive emissions by 2050, the two-degree warmer world is if we sort of continue on the path that we've been on. So if we don't take any action in the next year. And what they emphasize is just across the board, the difference between 1.5 degrees is pretty severe. It's pretty challenging. It has uh, large-scale distributional consequences. But the two-degree warming world is absolutely devastating. And so they highlighted a whole host of, of sort of differences here. The sea level rise difference between 1.5 and 2 degrees, uh, the, the, the differences in extreme uh, uh, sort of weather phenomena. My, my, so, so just to take sea level rise, so what yeah. happens when the sea level goes up? What, what kinds of things are, are we going to see uh, if, if we get to this 2% uh, level? Yeah, so this is one of the, the, the sort of cognitive problems with understanding climate change, is while climate change is a slow-moving process that, I mean, we're, we're talking about things that are probably 30 years long. They're not, it's not a one-year sort of thing uh, or even a one-day sort of thing. It's, it's a long-term process. The impacts are going to be quite sudden and rapid. And so uh, uh, sea level rise, if we, if we reach 1.5 degrees, it's going to be about 2.5 feet everywhere. So it's going to be about a 2.5 foot rise all, uh, globally. But that's not going to be 2.5 sort of in a uniform fashion or a very slow like bathtub effect where it just gradually creeps up the side. It's going to be punctuated by storm surges, uh, uh, flooding conditions uh, that are going to make a number of areas extremely, extremely vulnerable. Um, and I mean, when, when you think about it, like, like, I think the average elevation of a town like Warren, Rhode Island, just down the road from us, is somewhere between 10 and 20 feet. Um, if they are seeing a seven foot, 10 foot flood in a, a, a given year, which is quite likely in this sort of scenario, um, that's going to put significant strain on the city even to, to, to do the basic sort of uh, 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 functions of maintaining life in that part of, uh, uh, of the country. And that's in the best case scenario. So that's, that's if we take significant action right now, we're still going to see some significant flooding. Yeah, so, so, so that's really the, the first kind of thing that's going to happen, that, that the sea level goes up and the two and a half feet, you know, may inundate some shoreline areas. But what it means is that when there's a, when there's a big storm, uh, the whole city's going to flood and that's going to happen repeatedly. Yeah. Right. So yeah gonna I, have, go ahead. Right. And I, I so so we're going to have scenes like we saw a few weeks ago uh, in uh, Louisiana, where uh, I, I believe it's St. Charles Parish, right, was the yeah. the parish that was that was affected, and you saw the pictures of houses being completely uh, covered and surrounded by water, and so that becomes more and more routine if there's a higher sea level. 
Yeah. And I mean, this is one of the things is, is once again, when we're talking about climate change, these very destructive events that happen once every century, like a, 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 a five-foot flood in, in, in Warren, Rhode Island, uh, become more regular occurrences. And so it becomes a decadal thing. So it's every decade they have to respond to one of these uh, events that, that before would be every century, every two centuries or something like that. Um, if we think about like the, the, the Arctic Ocean, um, the expectation is if we do nothing, it's going to be every decade, there will be one year where just it has no ice. It's just not covered over with ice. Uh, the Arctic Ocean doesn't freeze over, essentially. Um, the impact of that on various systems is going to be quite severe. And it's not that occasionally we don't have low ice years in the Arctic Ocean. That's, that's something that, that has happened repeatedly. But the regularity of this... Um, regularity is the wrong word because you, you, you can't plan for it because it's uh, climate change throws out a lot of the old models, but the, the uh, occurrence of it becomes far more uh, uh, numerous in terms of just how we're doing. And so as opposed to sort of planning for a, a, a very extreme year possibly happening, you have to plan for one happening every, every decade, essentially. And uh, you're mentioning, Hurricane seasons are are worse, right? More hurricanes, yeah. More big storms in general. Uh, we talked about fires and floods. Uh, any other environmental impacts in particular that that we ought to note here? Well, I guess we yeah. talk about the loss of coral, right? That's another warming ocean. Uh, the, uh, the, not only the warming ocean, but the ocean acidification. And one of the, the consequences, which is actually separate from climate change, although very interconnected, of course, uh, is that emitting the, the, the amount of CO2 and, 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 and greenhouse gases that we currently emit is actually uh, causing the ocean to become more acidic. Um, and uh, I mean, just, just the, the amount that the ocean has already changed, it's already uh, increased by 30% how uh, uh, acidic it was at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. And so the oceans are becoming increasingly acidic and, 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 and that's causing a whole bunch of species uh, uh, problems, that's causing coral bleaching, that's causing a whole host of sort of environmental problems. Uh, but one of the largest problems that we should sort of be aware of is a more acidic ocean can actually hold less CO2. And so right now the oceans are the greatest sink of our carbon dioxide. So most of our carbon dioxide gets uh, 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 dealt with through natural processes as uh, part of the carbon cycle that exists in the world. Um, but uh, uh, with increasing ocean acidification, the oceans are going to become less able to do that. And so the carbon dioxide that we emitted 100 years ago when the oceans were less acidic could be dealt with more effectively by nature. Now it's becoming less able to, to sort of do that uh, uh, cleaning and churning process, which means that the, the warming that is going to come from our pollution over the next 30 years is going to have more of a warming impact in a whole uh, variety of ways. Um, 
there's 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 myriad other uh, problems. Uh, the extremes are going to become more uh, common. Heavy precipitation uh, at some points with drought at others, and we've talked about the California wildfires. Uh, one of the things that that we should note is Southern California actually had excess rain uh, earlier this year, and it caused landslides. Uh, a, a number of landslides actually happened, and uh, uh, then they entered this drought period by the the middle part of the year. Um, that's going to become more of a normal occurrence where you have too much rain in the same year that you have than these horrendous forest fires. Um, and so, so you're going to get more of just living in the extremes rather than living in a sort of a normal time. So th those are some of the environmental impacts. What about social and political ones? When, when, when experts think about, about this, when, if we have a planet that's experiencing these kinds of extremes, what does that happen to, what happens to human society? What happens to our uh, political arrangements when, when this kind of thing occurs? Yeah, and so I was talking earlier about the climate problem. And, and once again, the first part of the climate problem is sort of the choice between 1.5 degrees warming and two degrees warming. And once again, it makes a world of difference which world we sort of decide to live in. The second one is though the, the sort of um, uh, uh, linked problems with climate change. So the problems that are clearly linked to climate change, uh, whether that be ecosystem collapse or whether that be um, uh, uh, other lasting impacts that sort of we're going to have to solve in a warming world that are more social in a variety of different ways. Uh, the third aspect is the inequalities in the current world. And you already talked about how uh, uh, the, the industrial revolution was necessary for, for human advancement in a whole variety of ways, economically, uh, health-wise, welfare, uh, 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 welfare standing, stuff like that. The fact of the matter is there's 700 million people living in extreme poverty right now. Um, and almost a billion, just, it, it just passed under a billion actually last year, um, people do not have access to electricity and do not have access to, to all the, the uh, positives that can come from electricity, whether that be the ability to do homework at, at, at night after the sun goes down, uh, or, or the ability to, to uh, engage in uh, uh, any of the good things that electricity sort of uh, brings. Uh, so a billion people don't have access to electricity. The third real aspect of it is maybe the sustainability sort of uh, uh, problem of climate change, which is it's going to make it increasingly more difficult and increasingly more dire to solve these ongoing inequalities that exist throughout the world and that uh, 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 there's been significant progress sort of made on them. Uh, over the past uh, 100 years, uh, uh, 50 years or something like that. And so it's going to challenge a lot of the, the efforts to actually eradicate uh, uh, political, social, and, and, and uh, socioeconomic inequalities that exist in the world. Yeah, up until now, the model for addressing those inequalities has involved essentially uh, producing CO2, right? The yeah. industrialization of, of China is, or India which are certainly, have certainly been big factors in the rapidity of the growth of uh, global warming, uh, has also made uh, both China and India much more prosperous in the last 20, 30 years than they were before. Uh, but that industrialization comes at a cost of climate. Yet, you know, we, they're the late industrializers and we're the early industrializers. Uh, is it fair for us to say, oh, you shouldn't industrialize? Yeah. And, then, and there's Africa, right? That's beginning to industrialize. And uh, if if 
how can we say slow down there? Uh, you can't have the prosperity we have because of global warming. Yeah. So that makes it an intractable problem, right? Yeah. And, and once again, I mean, for, for a lot of them, we're not talking about prosperity. We're talking about survival and, and uh, uh, abilities to get educated, to uh, improve your lot in life and stuff like that. Um, and so it's, it's really denying people the basic uh, 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 necessary means of existence uh, is what we, we, what we are talking about if we, if we pursue some climate sort of policy uh, 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 pathways is um, we, we get to reap the benefits of our pollution, which most of the, the, the warming that's happened so far, and it's been about a one degree sort of increase in, in global mean temperatures, uh, has been pollution from Europe and the United States. Um, so we're saying that that pollution was, was fine, but then the next 0.5% uh, that we're still the largest contributor to, but there's a number of other countries that have, have caught up in a variety of ways, uh, that their pollution is somehow not allowed and not permitted. Um, and so, yeah, it is this, this uh, sustainability question of really, uh, do, you, do you privilege climate action if that uh, comes at the expense of some people's livelihoods or uh, ability to, to uh, live meaningful lives? Well, let's talk about that climate action part. What, what kinds of things could we do to keep things below that 2% uh, threshold? Uh, yeah, so I mean, I, I, I uh, as you noted in the introduction, I take an international view to this. Um, and so a lot of times it's actually used in political debates in the United States where people say like, we shouldn't do climate action alone in the United States. We, we need an international sort of uh, effort and then we will join along. Uh, that's, that's oftentimes disingenuous when it's said, but uh, it, it is an argument actually made. Uh, but I, I agree with that. We do need global action to sort of coordinate this uh, process, especially to make sure that it's not going to have this uh, disastrous uh, 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 unequal sort of consequences. Uh, if we look at the current pandemic, one of the, the big problems of it from a sort of governance standpoint is that the wealthy have largely been able to escape. They've largely been able to escape a lot of the consequences, whereas the, the poor have had to go back to work because they're essential employees, uh, whether that be at grocery stores or at Amazon uh, warehouses. Um, Whereas the wealthy largely got to to telecommute and and, and change some some parts of their life uh, uh, to avoid the risk, uh, that's a system that is possible under climate change. So we could uh, uh, address climate change in a way that doesn't deal with these fundamental inequalities, uh, but I think that would be a, a decidedly bad system in a lot of ways. Um, and so, what a successful, effective international regime would look like would be something that requires action from all parties that is highly transparent, highly uh, 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 clear what uh, uh, carbon they're emitting, and then has them have, then requires them to have regular sort of uh, a ratcheting up. So they've, they've agreed to meet a certain level and then you use uh, some transparent democratic method to ratchet it up and to increase the sort of level that they can do. Um, 
so that you can deal with these inequalities and make sure that all countries are, are really contributing uh, based upon uh, uh, whatever version of uh, a justice really is uh, reasonable there. You need to have an international liability regime. And right now we have a really bad uh, liability regime. And so when a giant hurricane hits the Bahamas, uh, it's largely uh, contributions from other countries that help rebuild the Bahamas, uh, not uh, a sort of immediate uh, trigger mechanism that, that immediately delivers the, the resources they need to rebuild um, from a problem that they contributed almost nothing to. Um, and so okay. you, you need to have a, a good liability system. And then eventually there needs to be a good carbon pricing or a carbon tax system that can actually be implemented at a global level. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to have you explain the carbon tax in a second, but okay. Uh, if I can understand what you've just said there, so you're saying one of the things we have to do, given the inequalities in the world, is to say uh, to, to perhaps the more prosperous countries, uh, you probably need to uh, cut your carbon emissions more on average than some poorer countries that we're going to allow to produce more carbon uh, in order to uh, uh, improve their economies. So that so so that so something you, you can't simply say we're going to have the same equal standard of repressing CO two emissions everywhere because that's going to harm the poor worse than it's going to harm the rich. The rich are going to have to uh, perhaps contribute more uh, to this than the poor countries at least for a time until poor countries come up to a higher economic level and then you can. Uh, require them to tighten up more on their carbon emissions. Yeah. So, so, that, so, so that's one thing. And then the other thing is this liability that, that when there's a disaster, there are going to be disasters, but we need to spread the responsibility for those disasters and not leave it up to charity. But then in fact, there has to be some kind of a, of a, of a global you know, regime of, of, of uh, taxation and grants that, takes resources where they're needed in those disasters. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, on the first one, uh, uh, the history behind that is is when the, the first treaty was made on climate change, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, they agreed to this word that all countries are going to have a common but differentiated responsibility. And it's become one of the most fraught uh, uh, terms in the negotiation since then. But the argument is all countries share a responsibility to take action but it's differentiated based upon level of development. And that led to the, the problems with the Kyoto Protocol where they divided the world into Annex One countries, which are the developed countries, and Annex Two countries or non-Annex One countries, which is the developing uh, 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 countries. And the um, Kyoto Protocol was the treaty made back in the, was it the 1990s? Yeah, 97. 97. Yeah. So, so the, the, the sort of history behind this is we agreed to the uh, uh, United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change at the Rio Summit in 1992. And uh, uh, it was a, a, a big meeting where they had lots of discussions and they agreed to three different treaties, uh, one on desertification, one on biodiversity, and one on climate change. Um, and all of them were sort of broad framework agreements. 
they were the 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 agreement that we were going to keep talking about them. None of them had any real teeth behind them uh, 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 to any extent. And so uh, a lot of them became sort of work programs that worked in this. The Framework Convention on Climate Change uh, agreed within five years to the Kyoto Protocol, um, which uh, uh, had some good aspects and some bad aspects, uh, like every treaty. Uh, there's never been a perfect treaty made, I, I don't think. Uh, but the, the Kyoto Protocol, one of the, the biggest things they decided was they decided to divide the world into, once again, these Annex I countries and the, the non-Annex I countries. And they said all the Annex I countries have to agree to specific numerical targets of their, their, their carbon emissions that they're going to sort of hit and didn't require anything of the, the they required very minimal things of the non-Annex I countries. So they required- and who are in these two categories? Who are, who are Annex I and who are- Annex. Uh, Annex one is the United States, Europe, Japan, okay. uh, uh, Russia fit in there. Uh, but Russia, uh, their, their position was always that they were being evaluated based upon 1990 carbon levels. And they were a larger economy in 1990. Their, 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 their economy is smaller now. Uh, and so they, they would always meet their Kyoto targets without doing anything with, with no real effort whatsoever. Um, Australia fit in Annex One. New Zealand. Uh, uh, you have some other developing countries that like insist on becoming Annex One just so they can feel like they're they're important. This is the case of Turkey, who always insists on being Annex One, even though they probably socioeconomically would not be included there. Um, so it's 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 a weirder group. Okay, but it, but this but essentially, what the Kyoto Protocol said was that these, you know, mainly wealthier countries, who are who have emitted most of the carbon, you know, in the last 150, 200 years, uh, are going to have to adopt clear standards for reducing their emissions. And other countries uh, don't have to worry about it for now. Yeah, right? and, and the other countries, the notable cases are China, India, Brazil, Nigeria, um, the developing countries, yeah. And I can see that that right away is going to raise certain eyebrows. It, it certainly could... They're going to be, and we heard that right in the United States. A lot of politicians immediately denounced the Kyoto Treaty, saying, "Oh well, uh, this is requiring us to do these onerous things, cutting back our uh, production and 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 production of CO2." But uh, China's getting a free pass. Yeah, and and I mean the Senate passed a, a resolution unanimously. It was ninety-seven to zero, uh, which uh, seems like a, a different time at this point. Uh, but passed it ninety-seven to zero, saying we will not agree to a treaty that requires us to take actions, but does not require China uh, uh, particularly to take any action. Uh, and they passed that in ninety-eight, I think. So right after the Kyoto Protocol sort of got passed. Uh, so and, so that, that's that's the real problem here. I mean. We have this international problems. People are situated differently, uh, yet uh, any any attempt to recognize those differentials is going to be resented. It's going to be opposed, uh, and uh, and 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 that stymies uh, useful change. Yeah, and, and and once again, you get you get sort of this artifice as a result of it as well, where countries like Russia say, "Yeah, we'll we'll throw out whatever target you all want because 
we're going to hit it because we're going to hit it anyway. Uh, you get European states that uh, uh, for their own domestic coalition, because the Green Party was a member, they set way too ambitious Kyoto targets, and then they they really weren't going to come anywhere close to it. And so you did get this 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 politics that I think is quite quite normal of uh, uh, producing a system that that doesn't lead to good faith by any parties involved and then is is something immediately rejected by the United States out of hand as a result. Right. And so from Kyoto, we went to the Paris Accords, right? That was the... That's a, 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 a long uh, road with lots of, of twists and turns, yeah. Well, well, take us down the road in a sort of hasty fashion. Um, <laughs> um, take the, the, the most significant turns and... See if we can get to Paris. Well, so Kyoto got got a quick number of ratifications, but not enough because it had it had two requirements for ratification. And every international treaty that's multilateral has the conditions on ratification. And for most treaties, it's just number of parties. So they sort of say like, if a hundred countries join onto this, then the treaty comes into effect. Kyoto was unique because it had two ratification targets that it had to meet. It had to meet the number of parties, and I can't remember exactly what the number of parties it needed to, to sort of uh, have a sign on to it, but it also needed a total number of the carbon emissions of the world. And so it needed, it needed uh, uh, enough countries to pass as well as enough carbon to actually pass. And as soon as the United States opted out, that made it an uphill battle even to get it sort of ratified. And so they got it ratified actually the last month when Russia joined into the treaty and Russia didn't care about Kyoto at all. Once again, they were going to meet the requirements and uh, there's, there's a larger sort of feeling that climate change is actually going to be good for, for Russia because it's going to turn Siberia into the world's breadbasket, um, as well as give them access to the Arctic Ocean for all sorts of uh, uh, industrial activity and military activity. Um, but they agreed to it simply because the EU said, we'll support you joining the World Trade Organization. And so it was a, a, a non-climate related trade-off that actually got us Kyoto. And so the result is Kyoto was very weak from the beginning. And it sort of limped along for a, a, a number of years in the mid-2000s. Uh, but uh, uh, at its end point in, in, in the early 2010s, uh, it, it, it was just barely staying alive. The carbon market had, had virtually collapsed. A lot of the other things that it sort of had established were not functioning very well because um, it, just, it just was weighing down and the Great Recession had hit and really sort of was the, 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 the last part of Kyoto. And so they agreed to a second work program that was sort of going to like do Kyoto with a few changes. Uh, and they, they were aiming for that to be from 2012 to 2020. Um, uh, uh, that never reached the num necessary number of, of ratifications. And so I think it needs 144 countries to ratify. And I think they're at 140 last I checked. And 2020 is, of course, expiring, so I, I don't think they're going to hit the, the, the sort of post-Kyoto work. And so then they had nothing. They essentially had no international agreement on climate change for the middle part of, of, of 2013 to, 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 to 2017. Um, and so they, they really were struggling uh, greatly with uh, uh, what to do with that period. Uh, they tried in Copenhagen to restart the process and come up with a new agreement. 
And the negotiators had hammered it out. And then at the last moment, the negotiations failed and they just did nothing. And so the heads of state came, uh, Obama attended and, and, and Merkel attended and everybody like that. And they did some face-saving gesture where they did one sentence where they said, we accept the, the Copenhagen Accord, but really Copenhagen was a, a huge failure. And so they took a couple years out between 2013 and 2015, and they really sat down and said, let's make the best we can get achieved in the world we live in. So let's not really be ambitious, but actually just get a new framework to work on. And the result of that was the Paris Climate Accord. And it's, it's weak in a lot of uh, respects. It does not have numerical targets that have been set and published. Uh, it instead just requires all states to sort of take action uh, in a transparent manner. Um, but it does have some really good uh, 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 reporting and sort of uh, 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 ratcheting mechanisms that can really lead to the Paris Climate Accord actually being a new framework for climate change. Uh, in terms of, of specified targets, it's weaker than Kyoto, uh, but in terms of its ability to actually get action done, it's, it's probably stronger, uh, but it depends a lot on willpower of national governments and willpower of civil society. And of course, it's been undermined considerably when Trump withdrew, right? Because the United States basically said, we're not even going to agree to try. Yeah. In effect. Well, so, so the Paris Court itself, it's a really good question. And I, I, I mean, uh, Harold Coe, uh, who's, who's a, a really good international law professor, uh, wrote this book last year, I think, where he, he argued that it actually hasn't been undermined, that Trump's withdrawal uh, 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 didn't harm the Paris Climate Accord to a significant uh, uh, level, uh, largely because the negotiators had already become a, used to a world with a lack of American leadership on this particular issue. Uh, the United States never ratified Kyoto. Uh, the United States has, has been a thorn in the side of negotiations for years. And so in some ways, the Paris Climate Accord is actually already America-proofed. <laughs> it's already sort of uh, uh, governed by this. And, and of course, I mean, technically, the United States hasn't withdrawn from Paris Climate Accords. We can't withdraw until the day after this election. And so that's when the formal uh, withdrawal sort of happens. Uh, and then the formal reentry is very quick. And so it's, it's possible that we will withdraw in November and then re-sign uh, January, uh, uh, late January. So it'll be a total of three, minute, three months. Uh, having said that... In other words, what you're saying, Casey, is that even in spite of Trump's uh, proposal to withdrawal, the, the other countries can st are still pursuing their own uh, policies of promoting like renewable, renewable energy and other efforts yeah. to reduce their CO2 emissions. Uh, and it doesn't matter really what the United States does. Uh, yeah. And in fact, even in the United States, things are happening that are, are contributing to ratcheting down our CO2 emissions, right? Absolutely. And I, I, go, ahead, go ahead and finish. No, I, I just said in, independent of the government that, that things, yeah. are, things are happening, whereas where you could say even in the United States, in spite of the administration's policy, we're still kind of on track to you know, do something. 
Yeah, and I mean, there's a lot of subnational uh, 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 consortia and agreements between governors of various states, and there's the the United States Climate Coalition, uh, which is the governors of I think 20 states uh, that are are working on this, and that includes Democratic governors as well as Republican governors. And I mean, Larry Hogan in Maryland uh, has been one of the the most proactive Republican governors, uh, denounced the U.S. withdrawal from the Paris Accord, and and really has pushed a very strong climate agenda. Uh, for a number of years, uh, uh, we've had we've had pro-climate Republican governors before, whether that be Schwarzenegger in California or Kasich in Ohio. Uh, but in terms of, of really policy uh, sort of impact, Hogan is, is, is uh, uh, really uh, one of the, the larger pushers in this respect. Um, and then, yeah, larger sort of uh, things are happening at the national level to sort of do this. Uh, and and so the international negotiations recognized this and really created both a way that the global agreement is not going to be undermined by the United States, whatever happens in the United States, as well as a process by which subnational and corporations and uh, other actors can sort of link into the Paris process independent of their governments. And so whereas they, they traded the, the strong legal framework for um, a much more adaptive system that can really allow a lot of efforts to take place without, without serious guidance. And what are some of these specific things that say a state government can do, or, or even a corporation uh, that is sort of following along the, the Paris path? What, what are some of the specific things they can do? Well, there's a, there's a lot of different efforts that have, have sort of happened, whether that just be uh, consolidating and, and organizing your renewable energy portfolios uh, to match uh, sort of what is happening elsewhere. And so as a state like Rhode Island that has a, a, a high offshore wind uh, capacity, uh, but not a lot of solar capacity, could coordinate with another state to sort of have them expand their solar capacity so that we, we have a, a diversified energy mixture sort of to work uh, uh, regardless of, of what's happening that day. Um, that's not uh, the largest concern with offshore wind, which is pretty constant, uh, but for a lot of renewable technologies, the, the dead periods is something you want to, to make sure that you can sort of deal with. And for uh, a lot of states, that's not a single state problem. That's something that you're going to need your neighboring states to help you address. Right. Um, and so that, that involves things like states um, um, adjusting their regulation, their zoning and regulations to permit uh, the installation of solar panels or, or in the case of offshore wind, uh, facilitating constructing those those uh, those wind machines out there um, and, and allowing that to happen uh, and not try to block them because of uh, you know law, state laws or state regulations, right? Yeah, and doing so in a coordinated manner. So agreeing to 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 do that in a, a coordinated way, so you know what to expect, you know what's going to be coming on the market, uh, you know exactly how that process is going to work. So there's a whole host of these coordination mechanisms that states can take that uh, are 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 fairly easy and 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 uh, I, I I don't mean easy. Uh, they're they're in terms of of getting states and in the case of New England getting Quebec and, and, and other parts of Canada to agree to this is, is, is possible. It's, it's a, a coordination problem rather than a, a, a deep-seated problem. 
there's other ones that are, are much more difficult. They involve distribution and paying into stuff and, and doing stuff like that. And that's regional uh, uh, climate agreements on cap and trade and even carbon taxes, where you, where you literally set down and say, in, it, although there's not going to be a federal climate regulation sort of uh, approach, we as New England states or something like that are going to sit down and actually agree that we are going to control our car carbon and uh, adhere to the Paris Agreement and, and, and do our best efforts. And so you actually can establish uh, multi-state cap and trade systems where you agree how much carbon each state is going to sort of uh, uh, emit. And then you can trade between the states. So if, if Rhode Island wants the uh, 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 um, something that pollutes a lot in their state, they can then buy uh, 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 credits from Vermont that doesn't want that sort of stuff. And, and you can get a regional sort of cut in carbon, uh, allowing states to set their own sort of priorities and uh, 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 requirements. And talk a little bit more about the carbon tax. So, so yeah. how does that work? Uh, well, carbon taxes are at least on paper, and 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 economists love it, and 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 uh, uh, most policy uh, sort of folks love uh, carbon taxes. Uh, simply put, you just charge everybody for the carbon they use, and so you add a tax onto the gas pump, you add a tax onto your your utility bill, you add a tax onto all the various things that you do that uh, use uh, uh, carbon dioxide. Um, for, for wealthy cities, if they're uh, re-asphalting their whole uh, uh, street system, uh, that gets taxed. That gets taxed at a higher level than the states that are deciding, or the cities that are deciding not to, to, to do things like that. Uh, and so it is actually a, a fairly easy process that you just add taxes to everything that uh, involves uh, uh, fossil fuels. And, and um, the idea there is that it simply makes these things more expensive, and therefore people, there's an incentive for people to find ways of maybe accomplishes the same thing using less carbon, right? Yeah, and, and the economist case for it is that we don't actually know, and, and, and there probably isn't a universal way for all states or all individuals to cut carbon. For some people, it's going to be worth it to use mass transit. For some other people, it's going to be more worth it to uh, 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 buy offsets and, and, and something like that. Uh, for other people, it's going to be energy efficiency. And so there's going to be a whole host of different technologies and opportunities for people to get inside. And not only do we not think there's a universal for all people to sort of cut their carbon, but there's also maybe not, uh, we, we might not know what the best one is right now. There's a lot of uncertainty in these technologies and how they're developing. And so instead we might want the, the free market sort of to figure that out. And, and one of the effective ways is taxing externalities, in this case, carbon dioxide. And so actually putting it into the, the, the hands of the consumer to decide for themselves, we're going to invest in this, we're going to invest in this, uh, in order to have less of a tax burden. But carbon taxes have often been criticized as well because of inequality. That is... They're infinitely regressive, yeah. Yeah, so so, so that's a problem. That, that, that if I'm a low-income person and I need my car because of the absence of mass transit to get back and forth to work, uh, I'm going to have to pay extra because of the carbon tax on uh, my gasoline. Yeah. Uh, and that, that creates problems. I mean, wasn't the yellow vest movement in, in France a response to a carbon tax that 
the French government was trying to impose, right? And absolutely, yeah. Who were dependent upon automobiles were up in arms yeah. uh, about that. Uh, so, so uh, how do we overcome that? I mean, if we're going to, if, if we decided to use a carbon tax, how do we deal with the inequalities uh, associated with it? Yeah, and once again, if we move outside the United States, and I, 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 I think uh, uh, looking at the Yellow Vest protest in France was excellent, but in a lot of d- developing countries, they actually subsidize uh, fossil fuel usage in order to offset this impact. And so they actually uh, subsidize gasoline and they subsidize uh, direct fossil fuel usage. And so whereas in the United States, it's, it's, it's going to be a distributional issue. In a lot of other countries, it's going to be uh, quite severe because what you're actually doing is you're taking away a subsidy for the poor. Uh, it's not merely just just adding on a tax. It's actually mm-hmm. taking away a benefit that they have, um, which is is has been known to cause protests, whether that be in Haiti or Iran, uh, which are are places where they've seen this protest over the past couple of years. Um, there's a lot of proposals for how to uh, struggle against the regressive sort of uh, impact of it. Uh, one of my, my uh, uh, dissertation advisors, James Boyce, uh, he's written a number of papers for a, um, oh, I can't remember what he calls it. Uh, essentially, it's a, a credit scheme. And so what we do is we tax carbon universally, and then we use some share of that to actually engage in carbon reducing uh, policies at the national level. But then essentially we give everybody back the, the universal basic income or the, 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 the credit of uh, $500 a year or something like that, um, where that then offsets it dramatically for the poor uh, uh, individuals uh, and, and cuts into it a little bit for, for individuals. And that was essentially Bernie Sanders uh, carbon tax idea, which, uh, 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 he promoted a lot this year was yes, absolutely establish a tax so that people know the cost of the destruction they're causing with their, their purchases, but then establish the system where the money you raise from that tax actually goes back either in a, a universalist fashion or even in a progressive sort of credit to, to the poorest or the middle class. Um, and so Bernie Sanders said, and I, I, I think most of the, the climate economists that looked at it said his, his numbers sort of add up, that uh, 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 people in the bottom 60% really wouldn't pay anything uh, uh, additional as a result of their, the, the carbon tax that he proposed. Right. And the Green New Deal, uh, Try to do something comparable, right? And I don't know if that's Sanders' plan, but it's also is only in favor of carbon tax if you have some way of compensating people who are going to be harmed by the yeah. costs of 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 carbon usage. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, uh, the Green New Deal and their their particular focus on. Um, uh, workers in uh, fossil fuel industries that are going to be unemployed or uh, harmed by this process and making sure that they actually are, are taken care of in a variety of ways is, is, is part of the same sort of idea of we, we take climate action, but we do so in a way cognizant of the trade-offs and the, the inequalities that are going to be created. Um, because there's a, a, a the, the sort of status quo way we could proceed where we just use our current institutions and our current tools and and stuff like that to address climate change. Uh, And that world uh, uh, might deal with climate change somewhat effectively, just, just the the nature of renewable energy developing and becoming cheaper and better as, as time goes on and more people being able to use it in their houses and everything like that. Uh, 
but that 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 process is just completely uh, inattentive to inequalities whatsoever, and so it it, it has a high chance of of exacerbating them, uh, if not just simply ignoring them and and making them worse in a variety of ways. So plans like carbon taxes that actually take account of this, or the Green New Deal, or or, or some cap and trade uh, uh, provisions, really can uh, uh, deal simultaneously with with climate change as well as environmental justice and uh, uh, those who are offset um, or set back by uh, climate efforts. Yeah, so essentially saying we can't just leave it to the market. We can't just leave it to you know, corporations deciding, oh, actually renewable energy investments could be profitable. Uh, uh, I read in the press recently that some of the big oil companies are starting to invest in renew renewable energy because they're thinking, well, in the future, uh, maybe that's going to make us more money than, than pumping oil out of the ground. Um, so so there, there is that impetus out there, but we really can't count on that by itself without yeah. some kind of governmental action. Yeah, I mean, once again, the climate problem has these three sort of uh, uh, issues of the climate problem, the interactive problems that, that, that climate change interacts with, and then the inequalities that exist in our world. Uh, the free market uh, 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 could probably solve the, the first one uh, in, in, in sort of a vacuum. Uh, but I think it's, it's, it's not suited perfectly at all for the second or third uh, dimensions of the problem. Uh, and so that's what a lot of the proposals are doing is not simply solving the, the carbon problem, but also trying to deal with the, the, the interactive effects as well as the inequalities in the current world. Yeah. Okay, D to sum up here, uh, should we be optimistic or pessimistic uh, over the next few decades? Uh, do you think the world is going to face the challenge of uh, climate change? Or, uh, uh, I don't know, what do you, what, what, Professor Casey Stevens <laughs> in his crystal ball, uh, what uh, does he see happening here? Well, I, I, I always end these things with optimism because because that's uh, that that that's a better way to end sort of thing. Uh, but I do really believe it. I mean, the fact of the matter is, a Pew uh, poll from this uh, year uh, had 65% of Americans saying that the government is doing too little to reduce the effects of climate change. Uh, that's the highest number that that's sort of ever been recorded in this. Uh, in 2016, you had a number of Republicans uh, standing on the stage of the debate stage uh, promoting significant uh, 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 climate change efforts. And so at least even in the United States, the uh, 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 polarization aspect of climate change that, that really was uh, a, a marketing uh, a program uh, in the 90s and 2000s is breaking down. And an increasing number of voters are starting to see climate change as a problem, whether they're conservative or liberal, and not as, as solely sort of a liberal or environmentalist uh, uh, problem. Um, now, beyond, a raging wildfire does not choose conservatives or liberals or Republicans or Democrats, right? Well, and, 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 the, and the droughts, I mean, uh, uh, the, the, the West uh, is very attentive to, to climate change and, and, and becoming more so as this 20-year drought that they, they've kept selling the West on this, that it's a 20-year drought, it's a 20-year drought, it's a 20-year drought. Uh, I think we're in year 25 now. Uh, okay. So it's, it's and, and, and there's no end in sight. It looks like it's gonna keep continuing um, for, for the foreseeable future. Um, 
on the international level, so so that's just the national politics where I do think there's a sea change coming. On the international level, um, uh, uh, the 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 last uh, conference of the parties of the climate change conventions was really probably dispiriting. Uh, it was supposed to be in Chile, and then it got moved to Madrid because Chile had massive protests. Uh, the result was a, a really bad uh, a, a conference that didn't achieve much of anything. And then, of course, 2020 efforts were just completely scuttled by the pandemic. And so there's, there's not a lot of reasons to be hopeful at this particular point. Paris was a success on many years of serious talks, but the follow-up sort of hasn't come yet. And you really need the follow-up to make Paris work. Uh, Having said that, I think there's a lot of opportunities for really quick and significant efforts at the international level that can really deal with a lot of these problems. Uh, the liability issue is going to be a thorn in the side for, for the next decade, uh, but there's very, very smart people working on it at the international climate negotiations that are no longer sort of people that are coming to their first climate conference, but are people coming to their third, fourth, fifth uh, climate conference and really are are uh, building up a really robust system that I think is going to be really impressive. Uh, in addition, the, the division that has sort of bedeviled uh, climate change between the, the, the developed world and the developing world uh, is breaking down in a variety of ways, and you're starting to get a lot more uh, uh, nuanced and varied sort of uh, uh, arrangements that are really going to allow some significant uh, 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 changes in the negotiations in the next decade that should open a lot of windows for much more aggressive action uh, at the international level, but also in some key regions uh, that really need to take uh, uh, climate change very seriously. Um, it's it's going to be a, 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 a bad uh, a, a time while we're sort of learning and negotiating the way through this. Uh, but I, I, I really do believe we can avoid a two-degree warming century this, this century. Um, I, I think we have the right apparatus set up. Um, we need to, to change the tools that we have to really turn them towards the climate problem. Uh, but but we, we have a, a political sea change happening in the United States, and we have the international sort of uh, process uh, showing significant results. And, and, and we'll see at the next uh, conference of the parties uh, if they can make some big breakthroughs on a lot of these issues. Uh, but I, I, I think there's a lot of reasons to suspect that we will see one or two uh, maybe maybe more breakthroughs in the next uh, conference of the parties. Well, that's a good note to end on, an optimistic note that that maybe the world is going to address this this uh, historic uh, problem. Uh, certainly, it we have to hope for that because the prospects of not doing so are, are really really grim uh, for uh, for our children and grandchildren, particularly. So. So thanks so much, uh, Casey Stevens. I uh, really appreciate your expertise on this. Uh, I certainly learned a lot uh, listening to you uh, today, and I'm sure our listeners did as well. Uh, so thanks for being with us. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Okay, we'll have you back uh, maybe next uh, in six months or so and see if America's back in the Paris Climate Accords or not. We'll see. Okay. Uh, next week, I will be interviewing Professor Tony Affini, a Providence College professor of political science, about race and the 2020 election. So uh, you can look forward to that conversation next week. Thanks to Chris Judge of the PC Marketing and Communications Department for his help with podcast production.
And thanks especially to our listeners. If you have not done so already, please subscribe to Beyond Your Newsfeed wherever you get your podcast and tell four friends about this podcast. Thanks so much.